Hello and welcome to The Price of Everything, a podcast that aims to shine a light on pricing. The cost of commodities, that's energy, food, and so on, is such an important part of our lives. But how are those prices actually calculated? Why do they move up and down quite so much? And what's next? The Price of Everything is the first podcast dedicated purely to how pricing works. My name is Neil Bradford, and I'm the founder and CEO of General Index, which is the world's first technology-led benchmark provider. Together with my colleagues from around the world and some special guests, we'll be taking you through how some of the world's most important commodities come to be priced and what the future looks like for them in the age of climate change and the energy transition. Dated Brent is the world's most widely recognized price for crude oil. But why Brent? How did an oil field off the coast of Scotland become so pivotal in global oil pricing? My colleague David Elwood explores the history. In 1972, Shell announced the discovery of the Brent field in the North Sea. The exploration platform Bravo was installed in 1975. 115 miles northeast of Shetland, and production began the following year, with the first tanker loading crude oil at the Brent Spa in November 76. Around the same time, a schoolboy somewhere in England entered his teenage years soaking up the front page news of spiralling oil prices. By the time Brent field production peaked at 504,000 barrels of oil per day in 1982, that schoolboy was now an undergraduate, reaching the end of his studies and on the brink of beginning a 38-year career at Shell, where he would rise to head the world's largest crude oil trading business. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Price of Everything. That schoolboy was one Mark Quartermain, and I'm pleased to say he joins us now on the podcast. Mark, welcome to The Price of Everything. Thank you very much indeed, David. Uh, a very nostalgic introduction. Thank you. <laughs> Good. Well, well, don't worry. This this isn't an episode of This Is Your Life. Uh, we don't have any surprise special guests waiting for you in the wings. Um, but I'll, I'll just tell listeners. So Mark, as I've alluded to, he held various roles during his four decades at Shell, uh, including as head of oil products, trading and supply, and later the same role for crude. And we're really pleased to have Mark on the podcast today, uh, hear this episode three in this series on Brent, because his time at Shell began before the Brent benchmarks had even been launched. And as I said at the top of this episode, Shell was one of the equity producers in the Brent oil field itself in the North Sea. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to digging into your experiences and giving our listeners uh, that front seat view. So Mark, um, before we kind of dive really into the thick of it, let's go back to where it all began for you. Um, how did you come to be an oil trader in the first place? Thank you very much indeed, David. Much appreciated. And I hope uh, we'll share some interesting insights here with our with the listeners. Yeah, I, always, I think you mentioned at the front there, my teenage years uh, in a school somewhere in England, I really always wanted to work in oil refining specifically since making my career decision at the age of 13 years which is 
wasn't weird for me at the time, but sounds pretty weird now and certainly sounded very weird to many people I've spoken to. But I had an excellent careers master who basically said, in order to get on get on in life, young man, you really should uh, focus your energies uh, pretty early on with your choice of uh, your various subjects that you're going to study. And here's three ideas, banking, computing and oil. That was literally the three he put in front of me. I could have chosen any of those three. Uh, I was reasonably mathematical, um, certainly preferred maths to doing things like English and other subjects. And so they were natural fits for me, and he probably knew that. Um, but as I think you mentioned in the introduction, oil was very much front-page news in 1973-74 with the explosion of prices. And it was very much on the basis of what I was reading on the front pages. I just thought, that sounds interesting. That sounds cutting edge. And I chose oil and picked and worked for my GCSE, uh, as they have them in the UK, and A-level qualifications and, and degree accordingly. Um, and then started in Shell, as you mentioned, in uh, 1983 as a graduate chemical engineer. And then on the way to becoming a trader, did those six years as a chemical engineer before moving into supply and strategy on the marketing side. And then did a spell in finance alongside a module on the MBA, a five-year MBA that I did with the uh, Open University, which I can assure you was no mean feat with three very young children. It was uh, <laughs> not an easy combination of things to do. but uh, um, And it was Peter Ward. I think uh, many people on this call may have heard about him, but certainly one of the doyens of crude oil since it started trading in the early 1980s and the reputed inventor of the of the forward contract, which I suspect David will talk about later. Uh, he was the person that actually sort of saw me uh, in my other moves, you know, in my sort of uh, various roles in Shell and thought I had the credentials and the value chain background to be a trader. So he plucked me from the rest of the Shell world and took me into trading in uh, in 1993. Right. So you, I guess you, you kind of landed right in the thick of it. Um, just take us back in terms of your your experience as a, a chemical engineer. Uh, what did that look like when you were working within the sort of supply and strategy? Yeah, so I, so I worked, I did two separate things. I worked in the refinery for six years, which is the thing I'd been working for since I'd, since I'd been the age of 13. So I worked in things like uh, distillation, um, kerosene treating. And actually, the thing was my breakthrough uh, role was actually in the worst part of the refinery, arguably, in, in bitumen. Um, and actually, what, what, like, what refinery was this, Mark? This was Stanlow Refinery up in the northwest of England, which is no longer owned by Shell, but is still very much present up there uh, as one of the key UK refineries. So uh, that was where I had my six years experience. Um, and again, that finished in bitumen, um, in bitumen refining, uh, where I actually got uh, my real first sense of the importance of crude selection to uh, to the products you're making. And I know I suspect we'll touch upon that later on when it comes to Brent specifically. Um, and it was from bitumen uh, bitumen refining that I was then plucked into bitumen marketing um, down in the southwest of England. Sorry, down in the southeast of England, I beg your pardon. Um, and in the southeast of England, uh, at, a, at a, the head office for bitumen marketing, that's where I did my supply, my strategy, and indeed my the small the digression into finance alongside a module I was doing on my MBA. And so it was with that whole background of experience that they then said, well, you've done some manufacturing, you've done some marketing. How do you fancy doing some trading? That was that's that was the background to it. 
And that's where you'd encountered Peter Ward. And like as you said, many of our listeners um, who um, perhaps you've read different books or maybe uh, maybe they're veterans of the industry themselves and perhaps enc- encountered him firsthand. I mean, he's sort of was a prolific figure at Shell and in the wider industry. Um, how did you come to find yourself on his radar? I, I, I honestly have no idea. I think he'd heard of me. I think he may have seen me a couple of times in the office. I think it was very much not me, but the experience that I had that was important. Trading at that point in time, uh, there's no such thing as a degree in trading, of course. Um, what Some people had started in trading. Other people were taken from other parts of the shell environment with various skill sets, including manufacturing and in some cases marketing, um, because they had that sort of broader understanding of the, the business. It wasn't just about buying a cargo of crude oil and then wonder what happens to that sort of thing. As a refi- as a person who'd worked on a refinery, I knew what happened to that. I knew why crude quality was important. I knew why product quality was important. Um, and so I, I think it was more the skill sets and the experience, I, I would argue, than me specifically that Peter was probably attracted to. And that's not about false modesty. I know that a lot of other people um, were plucked with similar experience. He wanted people. He wanted people who understood um where the stuff came from and where it was going to if i I can put it in those in those crude terms (laughs) um well so tell us then you moved into into the trading team what was your early experience there well if i i think the 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 relevance of all this of the introduction becomes particularly uh sort of comes out here because if i thought that all that value chain experience i've just talked about and indeed i was fourth year of five year of MBA studies, I think I mentioned that. So it was right towards the end of that. If I thought any of that would prepare me for the world of trading, I couldn't have been more wrong. I really couldn't have been. It, I don't think I came in expecting it to give me a, a this is going to be easy. I never thought that, but it was none of it prepared me. Um, and I will perhaps touch upon more on that very shortly in terms of the evolution of the market. But I started in products trading. Um, I traded fuel oil, first of all, David, in 1993. Um, ironically, fuel oil, um, perhaps some of the listeners don't know this, had something in common with crude oil, apart from being a hydrocarbon, of course. It had a forward contract. Um, the Little Brook High Sulfur Fuel Oil SIF, that's cost, insurance and freight, uh, cargo's contract and it made that car that contract made some people fortunes um mainly brokers who were charging 25 cents a ton if from memory on a 25,000 ton standardized contract which uh, i think my math still works reasonably well that's six thousand two hundred and fifty dollars a clip in 1993 money um so i know one broker who claimed he built his entire art collection on the proceeds of matching buyers and sellers of littlebrook forwards for a few years <laughs> um i i and I, I don't know whether, whether the listeners need any more sort of uh, clarification of the forward contract uh, david um well i think it's what we found going through these episodes is that we're not afraid to tackle kind of complex subjects. We know that our listeners will come from different backgrounds. So um, I think it's always useful for us to to dig into that a little further. Um, how would you 
how would you describe how would you unpack what a forward contract is mark yeah very simply i would say it's it's as as is the case as we'll come to in in brent it is something which is basically a standardized contract for 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 future or forward delivery so a physical contract in this instance uh, like with brent where you're basically saying the buyer and the seller are committing to supply and take delivery of a specified quantity of fuel oil at a um, at a particular location in this case Littlebrook which is based in the southeast of England um, and all of the terms and conditions pretty much apart from apart from price who the buyer and the seller are um, and one or two minor issues around credit perhaps all of the clauses are, are already stipulated so that makes it very very easy to trade them and it makes it very very easy for brokers to match up lots of people who want to buy and sell them um and interestingly david the contract was invented to fulfill what started as a social as well as a commercial need this particular contract the contract emerged from the challenges in the uk in the mid 1980s with the miners strike um so there was a big um industrial dispute in the uk um the miners strike and that had massive consequences for the supply of coal into um into the coal you know to the coal-fired power stations of the uk uh, littlebrook power station in southern england was a one of a number of fuel oil burning power stations so irrespective of your political leanings irrespective of whether you were for the miners strike and still were or whether you're against it and still are burning fuel oil at Littlebrook became a really important part of keeping the lights on in this country when the domestic coal supplies dried up because of the strike and by the um so so that that, that fuel oil forward contract almost be, because of the amount of fuel oil that was take, being taken into Littlebrook to keep the lights on um uh, there was a demand, if you will, for that product to be delivered to that location. And then very quickly, and this is where the brilliant ingenuity of the market comes to bear. Uh, people said, well, hang on, this is happening so often. We can standardize this. We can create a forward contract. Clearly, this is going to be needed for, for months in advance. So people want to buy and sell forward. That's what the word means. Um, and uh, and so therefore, uh, the little bit forward contract came out of that. And by the early 1990s and even with the minor strike long behind us it was still part of the market architecture these contracts like the crude forward market which as you mentioned was born in the early 1980s eventually created a fixed reference price off which other things could be priced so with all these things sometimes they can eventually lead lives far removed from their original motive if that makes sense so Apart from keeping the lights on, that was the motivation in the mid 1980s. Now moving on to being something which is a price reference, um, you know, eight to ten years later. So it became very much a, a speculation and hedging tool for people, a price reference tool, um, and it was particularly useful this particular fuel oil contract because unlike most other parts of the barrel, there was no serious fuel futures contract for fuel oil. So it didn't have a, a futures market like the gas oil uh, did, for example, or it didn't have a futures market like um, gasoline um, in the in the US. So um, it was uh, it was a contract which um, which went through you know various motivations, if you will, for its existence, but uh, was was very much my part of my uh, immediate uh, trading uh, sort of uh, what I was introduced to. It's quite interesting. It, it, I was just going to say it's 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 fascinating because it makes one think that obviously we are we are we're all living through times of 
crisis in terms of energy crisis and economic crisis, not too dissimilar perhaps to the, the 1970s and 80s. And there are companies having to do similar things in terms of create new innovative contracts. So maybe in a couple of decades time, someone else will be doing a, a podcast and referencing back to, to what they devise now and how that's been used. Yeah, um, but, it, but David, it probably won't be called a podcast. It'll have a, it'll have a new name in twenty years. <laughs> yes, I, I guess I guess you're quite but right. Going back to my early experience, the the enormity of the change from a life where I pretty much knew on Monday what I was going to be doing on Friday, David, uh, mm. to a world where I didn't know what I'd be doing in five minutes' time was a massive shock to me. I'm happy to expand on that if that's helpful. Yeah. So how, I mean, how did you adapt culturally to that shift in your working routine? Well, I certainly didn't for the first few months. I'm not too shy to say <laughs> that. I just wasn't prepared for the real time aggressiveness of the market. I can recall an early fuel oil trade where I thought I'd done a really, really good job um, studying the supply demand picture of the market. I waited and waited to sell. I knew there were only two cargoes left for sale and I believed the buyer needed both of them. And I think they, to this day, I still think they needed both of them. But I just, <laughs> I just waited too long. People talk about in trading that the, you know the, there's a, the, a two-sided coin, greed and fear. Well, I saw both sides of that. I was perhaps unknowingly greedy. And I certainly turned uh, knowingly fearful. Um, the other seller sold their cargo at a fixed price at the top of the market. And I waited and waited and waited for the call for, for my purchase as well to go through. But in the end, I was forced to sell my cargo at the PR, the price reporting agency, the PRA's quote, in two weeks' time. And we can only, I guess, the listeners <laughs> already worked out. Guess what happened to that quote? It and I took a bath, and it wasn't a very warm one. It was a very, very cold welcome, David, to the world of benchmarks and pricing. So I'd, I'd sold my cargo. Uh, it was physically placed, um, but it was pricing off a quote in two weeks' time. And uh, without getting into all the whys and wherewithals of uh, how the quote then began to turn south, let's just say the supply demand picture you know, changed uh, and perhaps the buyer of my cargo knew that that, that was going to be the case. And I, I took a very uh, cold bath and uh, I can remember my colleagues looking at me around going, there's no point being clever with the supply demand if you get this bit wrong. So and I'm very <laughs> a bit wrong. I guess you, you discovered that this what you'd moved into wasn't for the faint hearted. No, and, and a lot of people didn't survive. I you know, didn't survive their early introduction to trading. I could easily have been one of those people. It was a really, really tough baptism, if you will, of um, so that you know, welcoming, welcome to the world of trading. So I really, really struggled for the first nine months until I learned, yeah, partly the resilience and the nous necessary to survive in what has been described by others as a dog eat dog market. Uh, in a loosey-goosey pricing environment. I think that phrase has been used as well in both products and in crude. I think you know, it wasn't any different in both of them. Um, the loosey, I always smile a little bit because the when we talk about loosey-goosey pricing environments, uh, it's a very appropriate phrase given that Brent, no less, was named after a variety of, guess what, a goose. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, uh, I traded other products and I actually traded also freight uh, for a period and spent six months then working on completing the first ever natural gas spot trade for Shell. And I will just make it very, very clear to the listeners that was at a much cheaper pro fixed price than now. Um, it was also, um, I, and I say fit so much cheaper because, of course, the conditions are very, very different uh, today. 
but also at a fixed price because guess what? There were no benchmarks for natural gas. So that was the only way that you had to uh, to sell your product. You couldn't sell off of PRA medium or sorry, P PRA midpoint or PRA high quotation because there were no quotations. The market wasn't liquid enough to support a benchmark. So you had to sell on a, on a fixed price basis. Um, and then I arrived in crude in, uh, in 1997, which I guess will be our, the next thing to talk about. So you'd, you'd been by this point, I mean, you'd had a decent career, right? You'd, you'd been at Shell for, for 14, going on 15 years. Um, this was home for you. Like you felt comfortable there. This is where you wanted to be. In trading, yeah, I think by that point, by the by 1997, when I moved in, into crude, now I, I was very settled by that point. I say I think it took about nine months to get used to trading, and after that, yeah, of course you had up days and down days, some some uh, you know, particularly in very volatile markets. But I, I I'd learned the resilience that's necessary then by that point to be able to navigate those ups and downs. So I was yeah, you know, I was ready for crude when I when I got there in 1997. Interestingly, I made the move as Shell was going through huge changes, which made it more. Uh, it certainly helped, you know, prepare the ground for me. Up until I don't know if most of your listeners know this. It's quite. It is still remarkable to talk about it nowadays, even as a person who worked through it. But up until the second half of the 1990s, Shell had traded as Shell International, but also as Shell UK, as Shell Francais, uh, as Deutsche Shell, as Shell Norge, as Shell Svenska, as Shell Danska. It was in you know, in, in many countries, certainly the ones in Europe, um, um, we basically all traded as separate entities. We, we, we were loosely affiliated, but very loosely. And the independent traders and some of the other um, integrated oil company traders loved that. It, and it wasn't unknown for those tri traders to buy and sell product cargoes and make money in between the Shell entities. Um, and that was, um, and I, even as a Shell UK trader as I was, um, has, and had been since 1993, I can recall the rivalry between the Shell international traders and the Shell UK traders in particular, in crude, but also in products. And Axel Bush, who was a uh, very respected journalist at the time, uh, wrote a darkly comic piece about the intra-Shell rivalry and the cool reception we would receive in each other's offices and, and that was true but the most important thing and the thing that helped me in 1997 was peace broke out we all came together as one shell was going through other big changes and it became less about which country you worked in and more about the bigger whole uh, and shell trading's new organization was a was became a single what's called a single market interface an smi for all shell group entities and that was the structure that carried me through my crude career and has remained successfully in place until I called time on my entire Shell career back in 2021. So you you arrived in in crude trading at Shell in the years leading up to what I mean they they were really the first of a series of really major changes for Brent. And I guess this is a good point that we kind of pivot the discussion to to our our theme of this podcast series Brent and the benchmark. So there were. There were major changes coming up for the Brent benchmark. What do you recall from that period? Yeah, well, the new, I touched upon the SMI, the Single Market Interface Organization, and that was a massive help to help us to survive what was a, a really turbulent period between uh, 1997 and 2002, when the 
Brent Benchmark was going through many challenges and its ultimate transformation. There's an excellent book, which uh, I had the pleasure of rereading recently, The Squeeze by Tom Bauer, and that shines a strong light on the evolution of oil trading and a strong light on the on that period in particular. So I, I recommend to your listeners taking a look at that. It was it was really epitomized by being a very uh, by being a very aggressive period. And Brent was, of course, the main focus as a benchmark sitting alongside other benchmarks like uh, WTI, um, which were also having you know periods of uh, significant volatility. For me and my team within that environment, we, of course, had to sell equity crudes from around the region and we had to supply our refineries with North Sea crudes uh, in the northwest European region and far beyond. But the Brent market, which had now been up and running for, of course, about 15 years, it was really, really well established and a cornerstone of what we and a lot of other people looked at every day. Uh, it's worth saying those people were mainly in London to a lesser extent in Geneva and one or two other European capitals because they were close to the GMT time zone. That was really, really important if you wanted to be on top of you know those real time developments. Um, and I say I think I said, you know, it was really well established. North Sea exploration and production now was fully privatised post Margaret Thatcher's time in office as the UK Prime Minister. There was a flourishing trading business including involving the so-called Wall Street refiners. IPE Brent Futures Act was, of course, active and really successfully established. And the PRAs had long been publishing its dated Brent benchmark on a daily basis. I should add, this was alongside pages and pages of journalism discussing the market and other scuttlebutt and rumour, which we only read if we were bored or we had just come back uh, from holiday. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to say that. So any 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 person that was writing in the mid 1990s or late 1990s, my sincere apologies if you thought you were writing something I was reading every single day. I wasn't. But one thing that was really critical was checking on the prices that were being that were being published. And they probably I suspect the PRAs at that time probably didn't appreciate, David, that the, the increasing number of long term derivative contracts being based off the price assessments for data Brent were what could be called a strategic control point that would make the publication almost a distressed purchase, something you had to buy, irrespective of the subscription cost, if, if that makes sense. Well, we're, uh, we won't go into subscription costs on this podcast, but it's something that we are very happy to discuss with our listeners at General Index. Perhaps this is a good point at which to turn and just dive a little bit more into the Brent forward market, you you yep. helped us really digest uh, earlier about that example on fuel oil. Um, talk us through, we, ha we have, we've had a flavor of this on one of our earlier podcasts, but um, great for us to, to get your perspective um, at Shell, at that equity producer um, of the pricing complex around Brent. Yeah, so of course the price, the Brent pricing complex in particular had the 15-day Brent, the 15-day forward Brent market, and a flourishing um, CFD, contracts for different swaps market, which together allowed people to hedge, to speculate, to guarantee the supply of Brent or guarantee the disposal of, of equity into the future. That combination of hedging and speculating interests were really necessary to create the, the liquidity for a functioning Brent complex price reference market, just like any other commodity or instrument class. 
that's no different to agriculture, metals, bonds, equities. You need people who have different motivations. And uh, in order to have uh, a price reference market um, with, with the necessary robustness and liquidity, and you need all those various parts of the complex to line up, which in the case of Brent, they certainly did. So that was all good. Uh, and, and for the 15 day Brent market, one part of the complex, you know, this was this part of the complex was particularly underpinned by the SUCO 1990 GTNCs, general terms and conditions. SUCO was, I think I mentioned earlier, the UK arm of Shell. And the fact uh, it was this part of Shell underlined that the 15 day Brent markets life started as purely a means of tax efficiently placing Brent equity. And those GTNCs played a key role in sustaining that market throughout, you know, in that instance, now the first 15 years of its life. And of course, that's gone on well beyond that to the current day. Um, when I say sustaining the market, it, it means you minimize the disputes around a myriad of potential commercial and logistical issues which can come up of any oil sale and purchase. One such area of potential dispute was around uh, so-called five o'clocking. That was a crazy uh, daisy chain past the parcel process, which culminated in the situation at five o'clock UK time, when a cargo with dates 15 days ahead can no longer be sold as a 15 day Brent forward cargo, but became a dated cargo. And quite often, uh, David, the latter was worth substantially less. So you didn't want to necessarily get stuck um, with, at five o'clock with that cut, that parcel in your hands. Um, but you know, the GTNCs were really important in trying to minimize disputes around that. And one key piece was everyone had to agree what five, you know, you, this wasn't something you did, you did by your, uh, your Timex watch. This was something where you had to be absolutely clear what five o'clock was. And so in Shell, for example, we had an atomic clock to ensure we absolutely knew what the correct time was and, and therefore whether uh, if we uh, passed a parcel before five o'clock or we were left with a parcel at five o'clock, we knew exactly where we stood. But even then, armed with the correct time, there were still disputes, including the availability of the counterparty to pick up the phone at just before five o'clock to receive their dates. Sometimes it was difficult to get through. It was, a, you know, a particularly in volatile times, the the operators that worked on the desk at that point in time managing this process really did earn their money. That's a good place for us to pause and bring the first part of episode one to a close. When we come back, Mark will tell us how he once traded $100 million worth of crude on a cold winter's day while on a beach with his family in England as we continue to explore the history of Brent, the world's most important oil price benchmark. Thank you for listening to The Price of Everything, a new podcast from General Index. To continue listening, click on the link in the show notes for part two right now.